The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello and welcome. I'm glad to have you with us on another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. The last episode of the Paul Leslie Hour featured my interview with singer Dale Korn. I mentioned that he was flying into Atlanta from his home state, Maryland, and he did. Ladies and gentlemen, you've heard me talk about the Hoboken Cafe, the Hoboken Cafe owned by Johnny Pizza. This will give you an idea about how good the food is at the Hoboken Cafe. This man, Dale Korn, flew in from Maryland just to have lunch at the Hoboken Cafe. Well, it wasn't just for lunch, because he did visit with Johnny Pizza and myself, which was really nice. It was nice to meet Dale Korn in person. At one point during our lunch, which we ate very well, Johnny Pizza FaceTimed Terry Woodson. And it occurred to me that Frank Sinatra Jr. had brought all of these people into my life. Dale Korn, Johnny Pizza, I had the chance to interview Terry Woodson, and to tell you a little bit about Terry Woodson, he's an inductee of the Oklahoma Jazz Hall of Fame, the conductor for the Percy Faith Orchestra. For many years, he was the conductor and producer for Frank Sinatra Jr. He's worked with a lot of the greats, Don Ellis, Henry Mancini, I could keep on going. The interview was recorded an hour or two before the passing of Frank Sinatra Jr. We were at the Hilton Garden Inn in Daytona Beach, Florida. Frank Sinatra and his group were scheduled to perform that night. They were going to perform a concert of Sinatra Sing Sinatra, and it was a concert that never took place. I've had Terry Woodson in my mind, especially after this lunch that we had at the Hoboken Cafe which it was after this very interview that Terry Woodson said, there's a man you need to meet. His name is Johnny Pizza at the Hoboken Cafe in Marietta, Georgia. It's so interesting how the people that you meet can have such an effect on you. I like to do what I can to keep the memory of Frank Sinatra Jr. alive. I hope you all enjoy this interview, and I hope I get to speak with Terry Woodson again someday. So we're here in Daytona Beach, Florida. The man I'm speaking to is Mr. Terry Woodson, who's been waiting here patiently. Thank you very much for sitting down with me. My pleasure. It all starts in Oklahoma for you. Uh, yes. I'm uh, originally born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa, Oklahoma. How deep do you want to go into this? <laughs> well, from a musical standpoint, what are I, your memories? My mother wanted me to take piano lessons when I was five and six better. And I did as long as I could stand it, which was about a year and a half. And we were not from the wealthy side of town. We weren't poor, but we were, you know, middle class. When I got to junior high school, they recruited, went around recruiting children who had some kind of music, touched musical somewhere along had piano lessons or studying. And I took up the baritone horn. But by the time I finished junior high school. I was playing trombone, and and then uh, in high school I played trombone and baritone horn. That led to a scholarship at the University of Tulsa, and I graduated with a, well, a Bachelor of Music Education, but then I went on to get a Master of Music. 
But during that period, I worked played in the Tulsa Philharmonic. I had my own friend of mine, close friend of mine. We had our own jazz band, dance band, and I was writing for it. It was quite an experience. Good education at the University of Tulsa because they let us do just about whatever we wanted to do. I wrote halftime football shows and all that, and jazz pieces, and studied 12 tone composition. So it was quite a run of things. But during that period, I had a uh, principal trumpet of the Tulsa Philharmonic had a summer job in the Catskill Mountains, and I got that job. So I went between my bachelor's degree and my master's degree, I worked for the summer in the Catskill Mountains, which allowed me to do a lot of, lot of traveling to Eastman School of Music, to Tanglewood, see various people conduct your orchestras and play, and then into the city to study privately. Bass drum player of the New York Philharmonic, go to Birdland, do all of, you know, when you're young single, you got a car, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. What about your favorite music? What was the music that excited you the most from your earlier days? I suppose Stan Kenton really got my attention the most. A lot of people disagree with that. They didn't think, but I liked what I liked what Stan was doing in those days. And of course, we always enjoyed Basie and Duke. Those were just standard things. Dave Brubeck got my attention a lot with the time when he got into the time things, but most of them were instrumental in the jazz field. I was very um, interested in classical music too. I auditioned for several orchestras. Thank God I didn't make it. I went on to do a lot of other things. Could you say that there has been a musician that was a greatest source of inspiration for you? Well, yeah. There's a whole list of them. The first one was a fellow named Duke Lauchs, who really got me involved in music in junior high school. And this man was incredible in that he could take kids and teach them music. And he loved it. He just loved his job. And they're very special people to do that. You know, the way our education system is without getting too far with that. But they used to have schools that had music courses in them. And yet people that really enjoyed and loved their jobs and taught us music appreciation and how to play instruments and all kinds of So that was, he was very important in my early part. And then, naturally, as you grow up, you admire people. But in my professional life, Dick Nash, famous trombone player, we worked together on with Henry Mancini and a lot of other people. But I also studied with Dick and a dear, dear friend and a great man and one of the best trombone players in the world. Were you ever an Irby Green fan? Yes, yes, but I never knew Irby. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I mean, I've never met Irby. He's still around. Mm-hmm. I just, I've never met him, but I certainly know a lot of people who do know him. I admire him greatly. Fantastic player. Your decision to move out to Los Angeles to try to and succeed in the music business was that a scary thing, or was it a, something you were confident about? I was confident about it. And I'll tell you why, because I wasn't going to be there long. The job that I had at the Catskills the previous summer had 
been taken by a local fellow. And I had auditioned for the field service, United States Army Field Service Band, and passed that audition in Fort Meade, Maryland. And I was just waiting for somebody to, what do they call that term, ouster out or, you know. And um, so I, I knew I had about three months just to goof off. <laughs> and then I was going into the Army. Mm. And that was the days when you had to serve, so the draft was there. So I decided I'd just go west, young man, and got in my car, and I went west. Because my goal was always to play with Stan Kenton. I never did. Mm. No, it wasn't scary at all. It was a lot of fun. And I went, first time in my life, I went to Las Vegas. And that's where I met Frank Jr. Mm. It was a long time ago. We were both quite young. When was that? Um, 18-something. <laughs> 1964. 1964. Yeah, I just graduated from college. I mean, the day I got the diploma, I left. So, What was your first impression when you met Frank Sinatra Jr., this man you've had a professional association with for a long time? A long time now. He was very kind. I mean, we were, we were both basically teenagers. And I was driving down the strip, and I still remember it. I saw the sign that said, Larry O'Brien Octet with Frank Sinatra Jr. Being a trauma player, I was more interested in Larry O'Brien than I was Frank Sinatra Jr. So they were in the lounge, and I went in to the... I don't even remember what it was. No, it wasn't the castaways, but it was one of those little places along the strip. And they introduced myself to Larry, and we're still friends today. And he said, come on, let's go in the coffee shop. We'll have a cup of coffee. And we were sitting there, and Frank came in and sat down with us. And we had a nice chat. He was very, very kind. And uh, I mean, we were all just young guys. So, But, yeah, that was 1964. And then again, well, I started working with him in 1980 with his library. And then in 95, we, I produced uh, this album called As I Remember It. And in 97, I started conducting full-time for him on the road, and that's been a long time now. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get into the Henry Mancini mm-hmm. experience that you had. Tell us about your first encounter with meeting the great Henry Mancini. Well, I was trying to get started as a trombone player in Los Angeles. And, you know, it's difficult. Probably the best best gathering of trombone players in the world is in Los Angeles. It's the cream of the crop. Just every one of them. You might find some that are really great and some that are just only great, but you don't find bad ones. <laughs> They're all good trombone players. But anyway, I, started, I did get an opportunity to join this band headed by a guy named Don Ellis. And it was an avant-garde. I mean, it was a big band, but everything was in odd time meters. Five eight seven eight eleven eight nine eight, all kinds of not your basic four four, and it was kind of uh, it made an impression in Los Angeles. And the jazz critic Leonard Feather really enjoyed the band, and he started writing about. It. He was the jazz critic for uh, Downbeat and the but especially the Los Angeles Times. So uh, he gave glowing reviews about the, and it was exciting. It was to hear this big band roaring away in nine or seven or eleven or, you know, and it was 
and we had five saxes, four trumpets, three trombones, drums, percussion, and three basses. Oddly enough, but it worked. It worked. Uh, well, what actually caught on was that people started showing up and we would work on Monday nights at this little bar, beer bar, sawdust on the floor. A lot of movie people came in and it was fun. And I wrote for that band too and played. And one day I got off the stand and was on our break and I was walking through the audience and this person stuck out his hand and he said, I like the way you play. And I said, hey, thank you. And he said, I liked your arrangement. I said, thank you. And I still didn't look down. He said, I'm Henry Mancini. <laughs> and I dashed it down. I was shocked. And, and he said, anything I like. And he said, I like what you do. Anything I can do to help. And I blurted out, well, I could use a gig, you know. And that was in 1968. And I was with him till he died. The first movie I did with him was Wait Until Dark, Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, and uh, he was, what a gentleman and a completely loyal, and to say nothing of his music. I mean, he was fantastic, fantastic man. Was it ever at all intimidating to be, to work with him? Or was he just always laid back? Oh, he was always laid back. Well, any when you reach that level, they're, they're all demanding. <laughs> I mean, that's why you finally get to that level, because you get what you asked for. You knew what he wanted. It was very seldom that he ever raised his voice, because he knew it, and we knew how he wanted. He didn't give instructions, more, louder, less, softer, whatever. But there wasn't any animosity or mm -hmm. any of that back and forth. No, he was a gentleman, and he always amazed me. We do a picture, and we play the main title, and do the playback and watch the main title and the opening, you know. And it was always perfect. It was exactly the right music that you would want for that. He was just incredible, his talent. And he, he opened the door for me. Through him, I got more into the studios and, and became one of the regular players in, in Hollywood for quite a while. What would you say was the greatest lesson that you learned from the years you were with Henry Mancini? Be on time. Be sober. <laughs> Don't talk too much. <laughs> but have a good time. I mean, he was one. I worked with a lot of people. I worked with Person Faith for a long time. I did a lot of work with Quincy Jones. You know, I, I did quite a bit of work with different people. So, I was actually going to ask you about Percy Faith. How did you come to work with the Percy Faith Orchestra? Uh, well, in 1971, again, I was, you know, just getting started. The phone rang at 8.30 in the morning, and this fellow said, asked, you want to go to Japan with Percy Faith? And I was half asleep, and I said, yeah, sure. And I rolled over, and I told my wife at that time, I think I just said yes to going to Japan. So the guy called me back later in the day with the details of what it was about. And I said, yeah, okay. Well, it turned out great. And so we went in 71. And I liked Percy. I liked the music. I mean, he was, people think of him as being elevator music, and it's not. It's something much more than elevator music. He did a tremendous amount of work, especially for Columbia Records. You know, the first double album stereo of Gershwin was Percy Faith. 
And he did. He was A&R man, you know, for Columbia Records for so many years. Did early records with Tony Bennett, Billy Holiday, Johnny Mathis, all those with the, you look at, you'll see, with the Percy Faith Orchestra. So he, he did a tremendous amount of work. And he was a nice man. He was a golfer, and I was I played golf, so kind of hit it off. And I liked his uh, his son, brother, who uh, passed away at an early age, but was an agent in Los Angeles. And he had Quincy Jones, and he had David Shear, Shire, Dave Shire, Dave Grusin, I think, and some big names. But he liked me. For fun. Then we just kept going to Japan. And finally, I became the orchestra manager, and then after Percy died, I still the orchestra. Now I'm producing, conducted, everything, <laughs> and it's great fun. Has there been a recording with the Percy Faith Orchestra, either before or after he passed away, that you had a hand in that you were especially, you thought was especially remarkable? Well, yeah, we did. The JVC came along in the early 90s. Percy died in 1975, 76. In the early 90s, JVC wanted to re-record because a lot of Percy's recordings were all mono before stereo. And he was, the, you know, after the Columbia and all that was stereo, but there was a, some, many of the big hits and things that he did. Song from Moulin Rouge. Those things were all recorded on modern. And they wanted to, to re record these now in stereo 20 bit processing, and could, was it possible? So we had a, quite an orchestra in, in Hollywood, some of the best, of 50, 52 pieces, very much like what Percy had done in New York. The same amount of strings, same exact same orchestra, and those arrangements, and uh, I produced it, and I had a fellow, a good friend of mine, excellent musician and conductor named Nick Perito, conducted it. He was also the musical director with Perry Como, and a lot of it did the Kennedy Center, AFI, AFI, you know, that show. Very talented and knowledgeable man and a great friend. And we did four albums of re-recording Percy and Faith. Yeah, and they're still available. The purists want to want the original albums, and I understand that. But they're also, the ones we did sound a little cleaner, a little less than there in stereo, and it's 24-bit process. Yeah, I like those. I like to listen to both of them. The uh, ones Percy did, of course, are the originals, and they had New York strings were a little different than Hollywood strings. Hollywood brass is a little different than New York brass. You know, there's differences, plus and minus on both sides. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in the interview earlier about the music libraries, and I think that a lot of the listeners maybe don't know exactly what that is. I certainly don't know a lot about it. Tell us a little bit about that. What does it mean to be a music librarian? Well, there, there are basically two kinds, two types. One is that you library, just like a public library, only uh, the music of an artist or, or a company or a symphony orchestra, or whatever it might be. And somebody has to take care of the music. And so that's one way of 
that are doing it. Like I handle the library of Sinatra Library. I handle uh, the library of Barry Manilow, uh, Maureen McGovern, Patty Austin, and other people. I, in other words, take care of their music. It's stored, blocked away, but when they go out on the road, now, and then now I've got Landa Eugene Murphy. I've got his library. <laughs> A guy named Esteban, guitar player. Now he's getting started. So anyway, we handle it, keep, we store their music, take care of it. When they decide now they want to use this arrangement, they call us and we prepare it. To make sure they have the right instrumentation. Now, like most of these, most of these people will go out and do a symphony or a pops concert or something like that. Well, there's quite a few instruments involved: woodwinds, brass, strings. So we prepare that music, and then we have their own done with it. Comes back, and we put it back on the shelf. So it's the actual sheets. Yes. Okay. And then the other kind of librarian is the kind that prepares music for recording whether it's a motion picture or a television show or records, that somebody's got to get that music together, get it to the thing, pass it out, take care of that. It all is kind of the same, but the one that I do is the, the storage and the handling of the music after it's recorded and until it's played and it comes back in and it's all locked up again. Just to kind of illustrate this for the listeners, supposing, let's say, Barry Manilow is going to do a big band concert like he did with his big band record mm -hmm. from 95, I think. So he would call you and say, hey, we're doing this again. We need mm -hmm. the music for yes. these pieces. And then you'd send it to him. We'd prepare it. Get it prepare all, it. All the books. And, and so you got a first trumpet, a second trumpet, a third, you know, a first, second trombone. And yeah. So that then we'd give it to his musical director. All he has to do is pass it out. I see. Yeah. Okay, so in order to do this, you have to have a, a, a lot of knowledge about music. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody would maybe see music librarian and not realize what that involved. Right. Yeah. And there major, there's an organization called MOLA, which means Major Orchestra Librarian Association, and it's a worldwide thing. London Philharmonic in New York. Boston, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, all over the world. And these people are librarians, just like you have a librarian for the public library or the Library of Congress, or, and they're librarians for orchestras. Is there an artist that you have the, the most number of titles for? Sinatra. Sinatra, I figured. <laughs> I figured as such. And are these, I'm just very curious about this, are these documents, is it the, like the original in some cases, the original? Uh, most of the originals are, are filed. They yeah. are in another place. Yeah. I have copies. Copies, okay. Wow. Tell us a little bit about that. How did you come to handle the Sinatra titles? Well, I was, um, like I said, I was a trombone player in Los Angeles. And the ups and downs of the business, I had done some music copying, ink, pen and ink. When I first moved there, just to make ends meet. And then in the 70s and early 80s, the Moog synthesizer and a lot of those things started taking over. And it took up a lot of the business. And people started doing television shows in their garage rather than an orchestra in a recording studio. 
So the business, I had I had to do something. <laughs> so I kind of went back to copying some music for a while. And one of the places I copied for was this fellow named Vern Yoakum. It was the independent copying service. And his clients were Frank Sinatra, Nelson Riddle, Nat Cole, Billy May, Roy Clark, people like that. And he'd been at it a long time, and he wanted to retire. So he retired in 1980. And that's when I took over that. And along came with that came Nelson and Frank and Billy and Roy Clark and a bunch of a whole bunch of people. And it was all very quiet for a while. And then all of a sudden Nelson got busy again with Linda Ronstadt, those series of albums and Frank got busy again and it's and also I had Viacom and the shows they had going. We did those Matlock Jake and the Fat Man, Father Dowling. We did all those shows. So he got quite busy through the 80s and into the 90s. That was extremely busy (laughs) for me. You've been, as you said earlier in the interview, you've been working with Frank Sinatra Jr., and right now you're on tour with Frank Sinatra Jr. What is he like on a professional level to work with? What's the experience like for you? Uh, well, it's, very, it's all very positive. First of all, he's very knowledgeable about music, and he's had his own share of conducting himself with his father and with other things. And he's, over all the years, he's had his own groups, small groups, big bands. So, like I say, he's very knowledgeable about music, been surrounded by it his entire life. So he's fun. He's fun to go with and pretty much lets you have your own way um, you know, with the way your interpretation of music, and because we all kind of interpret it the same way, it's the being the music of our lives, <laughs> that we're doing not only his music, because he has quite a very good library himself of his music, but then we also have access to his father's music. So it's, it's a thrill. It really is a thrill, especially when we do big orchestras and pull out some of the heavier Things that Nelson did, or Gordon, or, or Billy May, mm-hmm. or especially Don Costa. And to hear all those glorious strings play this stuff. I mean, for the guy standing in the middle, which is me, it's quite an experience. It was December 12th that you were conducting, correct? In Beverly Hills? Yes. For the, the 100th birthday of Frank Sinatra. Yes. Were there any recollections from that night? Was that night a very special night? It was a very special night. I, well, there were many people associated with the Sinatras in the audience, so that that was nice. It was an emotional night for for Frank Jr. Too. It was in a theater, an old old theater that had been restored, so it had a lot of nostalgic things about it. In one way, it was just another concert, and in another way, it was a very special concerts. And we had a good band. Mm-hmm. It's always nice when we have a good band. Being that you're a conductor. Is there a biggest ingredient in terms of communicating with the artist as a conductor? Trust. Trust. Trust of communication. The artist trusts that the conductor is working to make him better, to make him sound better, or to, you know, accompany the artist. It's a natural turn of events, you know. And then Vice versa, the conductor wants to trust that the artist is going to let him do what he has to do. 
because there are two things involved. First of all, you have to have the trust and the respect of the orchestra, and then you have to have the communication with the artist. Are we all in the same boat? Are we all going in the same direction? And if you have two artists out there, well, you can laugh and laughingly know that there are going to be three boats, two of them going in opposite directions. <laughs> and as a conductor, then that's your job is to put it all together so everyone is in the right way. The album, as I remember it, mm-hmm. that, that you produced on the way down here, we listen to the whole thing from beginning to end, no no breaks, which is, I think is the way you're supposed to listen to it. What are your recollections from making that album? Oh, many. From the time that Frank first, we sat down and first talked it through, we did part of it at Carnegie Hall. There was a, a um, series of concerts, three nights, of the music of Frank Sinatra, all these artists, I mean, everybody. Tony Bennett, Rosemary Clooney, Linda Ronstadt, Joe Williams, Michael Feinstein. The list went on. And Frank Jr. ended the last night of it. And his, what he did was a mini version of, of this where he kind of told his story, you know, because he was there. That's exactly what it means, as I remember it, because he was at a, there at these recordings and these events. And then there was some talk about this being an album and that went away, came back and went away. Finally, it came back with Angel and we were going to do this. So it was gathering quite to get all the music, getting all the little ingredients that connected. It was a major project. And mainly it was Frank and it was left up to me to pull these little ends together, but it was his idea, and he was going to conduct it, and he was going to try to put his voice on it night. The other associate producer, um, Henry Catania, Hank Catania, said, Terry, why don't you just let Terry, he's, he's the other producer, me conduct and you sing. And Frank had never seen me really conduct before. So I... When I, then I just conducted the entire album, and he sang, and it worked out very well because I knew what he wanted, and I knew how to achieve that. So it saved a lot of time and money, and <laughs> uh, that he didn't have to do two jobs. But we had a great orchestra in the old Clinton Studios in New York. Big, high ceiling orchestra sounds wonderful. Besides the original charts, some really nice writing by the late Bill Rogers and did some nice connecting pieces, you know. It was and it was quite a project, big project. Then I took it back to Los Angeles, and we and I mixed it, the Capitol. We mixed and mastered at Capitol Records with my friend Armin Steiner, and it was fun just to hear it all, you know, put all the pieces together. I think I'll pat myself on the back. I think we did a pretty good job. I, I yeah. I listen to it every now and then also. And I'm like, well, that really sounds good. <laughs> yeah. And Frank sounded good. Yeah. And it, it really pulls at the heartstrings mm-hmm. in many places. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And then the That Face album. When you listen to it, I mean, the first question that pops into my mind is, will there be another album like that? Because that him picking out those rare kind of like gems like the... 
Do you think Frank Sinatra Jr., do you think you guys, is what I mean, will make another album? Well, let me let me set the record straight. He didn't pick those out. We picked them. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Gerald, Charlie Pignol is the other producer of this. Uh, and myself, we wanted to do we wanted to do something for Frank that his father had not done. So that's what we went through. And Frank had some stuff in his library that we used, but we wanted to do some other other things. So he he picked some of it, but we picked some of it. But none of it had been recorded by his father. Right. A couple of more arrangements his father, but he never used them. So. And we did that on purpose, so because immediately people would say, "Well, his father sang it better," as you know, or there's some remark about that, or and uh, and we didn't want that. There was no reason to put him, you know, to compare in competition with his father. This was his album, so uh, yeah, it was. That's that's why we did that, is to to avoid this thing. And I, we're proud of that album too. I thought Frank again. I thought when he got got around to it, he sounded pretty pretty good on this. See, yeah. he loosened up. Do you envision you guys with either a, at some point a studio or a live album? There's talk about it, but I don't. There's nothing in the works right now. Uh, I see. There's been a lot of talk about it, and I know Frank has got. He has some songs that he would really like to do, and uh, he would like to produce that himself and, and he may do that or it may involve us again but I think the next thing if he does another album I think he wants to be hands on all the way he's got time now to do it and he's got uh, the material some much original material in your bio it was listing some of the artists that you've contributed to the recordings of like Barry Manilow Rosemary Clooney Bed Midler has there been a recording project with some of these artists that was a, a favorite of yours? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, the, the, obviously the Percy Faith things were my favorite. Mm -hmm. And anything with Mancini. And the others were just their work. And I'm proud of them. Yeah. A lot. The Barry Manilow, the way he did the tribute to Sinatra. I enjoyed That was nice. Bette Midler was nice. You know, they've all, most of them have all been nice. They're, because we're they all know that we're working together. We're professionals. And there's no reason to, unless we really screw up, that's not what we do. A lot of people call it the American Songbook. I've noticed Frank Sinatra Jr., he always calls it this music, usually. Oh. And then in one newspaper article, he said you should call it the world's music because of all these international composers like Michel Legrand that have made this music. But I would ask you, do you think that this music will survive? Yes. Why? That's a good question. It's been hanging in there for a hundred years, a lot of it. The tonality of it, the story it tells, the, the story, I think it is, the development, it, it's classic construction of how to write a song or what a song should mean. It's like an aria that starts here, it has a peak, and it comes down, and it tells a story. And that's why these classic songs are the great American songbook. They tell a story. It's great poetry. It's great literature. You know, those kinds of things. And it's more than baby, baby, baby. I love you, love you, love you. Over and over. Which is a short story. 
if you want to call it that. But this, the you listen to Gershwin or Cole Porter, they those you could all you have to do is read the lyrics. Don't have to sing. Just read the lyric. It's a wonderful story by itself. And for those reasons, those elements, it brings a a feeling of joy or a feeling of sadness or a feeling of love or a feeling of sympathy. All those that's why I think they will survive, because it touches you emotionally instead of just physically. Uh, bang, 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 loud music. And there's all kinds of music. It's not just our music. There's a lot of music from the other side of the world that has been around for ages and ages, and it's uh, it, it all kind of works together somehow. So, you know, they have their their classical music and their rock and roll. <laughs> so, but when it's, to me, when it's honest and, and comes from here, comes from the heart, it's going to last. Hmm. What is the best thing about your life? I don't know. <laughs> Obviously, your family, those relationships. Beyond that is uh, my career. I mean, the best part of it is that I've, Gone all these years, and I've always been involved in music. When I was in college, I worked in the library, and one summer I worked in a flower store. But ever since then, it's always been in music. I've always made a career in music. So that part is good. It has allowed me to, to know a lot of people. The good times and the bad. When work is slow, I took up golf, I took up sailing. <laughs> Did quite a bit of sailing and earlier years, and I played a lot of golf in earlier years. But yeah, I think probably music has allowed me to do a lot of things and meet some incredible people and many fine musicians. You know, when you go, I've been to, to that tour of Japan, I've been 14 times, or 15, I've lost track somewhere, and with great orchestras each time, and different. People I've met years and years ago are still friends today. We met on a trip, or I met somebody in the Catskills. One of my dearest friends I met at the Catskills when I was there in 1965. We're still friends today. Trumpet player Don Rader is famous jazz trumpet And some other people that I met. I mean, that's part of one of the great things of the, my life in the music business, is all the wonderful people I've met. My last question. At heart, who is Terry Woodson? He's a very fortunate kid from Oklahoma that moved to the big city and made a go of it. <laughs> Basically, that's it, yeah. Well, sir, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for sharing. Sure, anytime. The boop, bop, deep, bop, doodly, keep, bop, doodly, shop, bop, ding, dock, Goodbye.